Hi, I'm Adam Beaumont, founder and director of With Purpose Consulting. Come to you from Melbourne. I'm a strategist, facilitator and regulatory consultant who works with executives, leadership teams and boards to be more effective, more successful and achieve better outcomes for them and their organisations. I want to welcome you to my podcast where we have insightful discussions with prominent experts in the area of strategy, leadership, operation and tactical planning and regulation. As the full implications of Brexit begin to roll out in the UK, I was intrigued to see a press release promoting the EU agreement that included a section titled Good Regulatory Practice and Regulatory Cooperation. Now, good regulatory practice is often talked about as the job of the regulator. It's the professional practice of applying the black and white law in context to get a desired regulatory outcome. Now, that might be about changing behaviours or reducing harms or protecting markets or keeping public order. Title X of the agreement, which covers some six pages, makes clear that the UK and the EU reserve the right to set their own levels of protection to get the outcomes that they desire. But it also requires that the, uh, they must use regulatory impact assessment processes and they must be put in place to, quote, foster good regulatory practices. Now, these are pretty standard stuff that comes with regulation or legislative impact assessment processes. Things like being clear on what the problem is that the regulation is trying to fix, looking at regulatory and non-regulatory options, avoiding duplication, considering impact on small business, all the usual sort of stuff. Interestingly, the agreement also puts forward a voluntary framework for EU and UK regulators to identify opportunities to work together without, and explicitly, impacting their powers of authority. Now, the language in here is not dissimilar to MOUs I've read and even been involved in writing between regulators, but I did wonder if it was novel for trade agreements to include, quote, good regulatory practice principles and if they actually worked. So in this podcast, in a world where global trade can help and hinder in human rights or different types of protections, I wanted to explore the role of good regulatory practice provisions in trade agreements and if they can actually help reduce harm and protect communities. To help us in this discussion, I'm joined by Stuart True. Stuart is the Director of Trade and Investment at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, an independent research institute focused on social and economic issues and environmental justice. He's edited a number of books and papers discussing trade, and in 2019, he authored a paper on the role of good regulatory practices in trade agreements, exploiting agreements between Canada and the US... EU and Mexico. He holds a Bachelor of Journalism and Political Science from Carleton University and is currently completing a Master's in Political Economy. Talking to me from his home in Ottawa in Canada, Stuart, thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. It's really nice to meet you. Um, thanks also for doing it from your, from work. You've, you've hung around to actually talk to me in your work location, so thank you. Uh, not at all. I, it's a quieter space than the home. <laughs> in, in, in the midst of a lockdown as well. Um, regulatory practice and regulatory cooperation mean quite different things to, to different people. For you, how do you describe good regulatory practice and regulatory cooperation? Well, for good regulatory practices, I basically go off of the, uh, the OECD definitions, right? These, these uh, series of, as you mentioned, some of them in the introduction, um, you know, these best practices, these benchmarks for government domestic regulation that have kind of been, uh, developed and thought through at the OEC level, uh, level since about 95. Um, and they do, they involve things like uh, processes, they involve processes like regulatory impact assessment, you know, transparency requirements, um, you know, notice minimum levels of notice that you give to uh, stakeholders to comment on regulations. So that, there's that side of it. 
And they also um, wrap that up with some of the ideas around what is good regulation. So around, you know, like you said at the beginning of the, in the introduction as well, around, you know, making sure regulation is efficient, you know, it's not going overboard. Um, it's meeting its targeted uh, priorities. Um, it's, it's doing so in a way that doesn't, you know, um, create trade barriers and that kind mm. of thing. So it's the good regulatory practices themselves are, I mean, in, in, in my view, from looking through the OECD materials, there's, it's kind of, there are ideas and practices that have kind of co-evolved since 95, which is not, not coincidentally the, uh, the founding of the WTO, right? Um, uh, where where you know, countries were thinking about ways to kind of reduce uh, trade frictions between each other. Um, and, and, and that's basically where the concept comes from. Um, regulatory cooperation, on the other hand, I mean, it could mean a ton of things, right? When you, when you think about it, it's, yeah. uh, it can be anything from carbon emissions, you know, with the Paris Agreement and these kind of global climate talks, countries working together to reduce emissions. It could be, you know, it could be at the UN level, say you're looking at the, the codex on food safety standards, the development of, you know, common labeling schemes, that kind of thing. But I mean, in, in my research, when I look at regulatory cooperation, it's, it's been pretty much focused on what I would call trade-based international regulatory cooperation, yeah. which is which is uh, which is new. I, th I think it's something new, at least since in the past 10, 12 years, we've seen this becoming more and more important to countries. Um, and, and it is, uh, you know, it's it's cooperation to address specific issues that have been raised by specific industry groups, uh, specifically to meet, you know, the requirement of facilitating trade, uh, lowering the burden on business, uh, that kind of thing. Right? So it's it's not all these other areas that governments work with each other and cooperate on regulations, which are numerous, right? I mean, it happens all the time. It's a very specific, I would call it a technique or even a technology uh, to 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 facilitate trade uh, in a in a kind of voluntary, more mm -hmm. casual way. Not casual in the sense of um, you know, no one's taking it seriously, but but not kind of in a rigid institutional way, but something that countries are still kind of experimenting with to try and figure out what is the best way to do this. So it's, for me, it's interesting in those senses that it's, it's new. Uh, it's a new way that governments are kind of thinking about how do we govern global trade? Um, mm. And, and uh, it's also uh, new in the sense that it's not, uh, or at least it hasn't been until recently, another legally binding trade um, chapter or, or trade agreement at the WTO. It's actually kind of a, more or less voluntary, experimental, bilateral thing that countries are, are trying to do to try and reduce trade frictions. So in this sense, we're talking about regulatory practices in the sense of creating good quality regulatory stock, if you like, like having good quality laws in the first instance, not so much in the, the practice of applying the law, but having the law and structures in place that makes sense for the mutual countries. Is that, is that a fair rounding sort of view of how you. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the OECD, I, you know, in 2014, they put out a report that was actually called, I think it was called governing the regulators. Right. So, mm -hmm. so to me, good regulatory practice is, uh, is very much about uh, it's, it's broad based. What do regulators do? You know, what should they be doing in what order? Uh, in whose interest, that kind of thing. 
Um, and so you're right. It, it is at that level that these, that these, that these concepts come into play. Um, and, and it is interesting, as you said, that they're starting to build these kinds of concepts, these uh, inter-trade agreements like the USMCA with Canada and yeah. the United so, States. Yeah. So why, why include provisions for sort of creating good regulatory stock in trade agreements? Like you were saying, it's new. Like what's the genesis for this? Why, have this, why has this happened? Yeah. Um, I think it's, in one way, it's, it's quite a, a long uh, genesis, right? I mean, going back to even the 60s and 70s, um, the United States and other, you know, developed countries at the time, but I think it was mainly the United States, they were quite concerned that as, you know, tariffs were coming down through the General Agreement on Trade Tariffs, um, that these other areas of government policy were kind of more visible, you know, that, that were in the U.S. in the perspective kind of interfering with U.S. exports right at the time. So it could be things like subsidies for agricultural products in other countries, or it could be, you know, uh, restrictions on in, in inward investment and that kind of thing, right? So these non-tariff measures that have been a problem for the United States and other rich countries too, I would say, including Canada for some time, right? Um, so what they did over that period, and starting in the 70s, they started building these agreements into the GATT itself. Like there was a technical barriers to trade agreement that was put into the GATT. GATT is the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Um, and it was really a series of, uh, you know, it was really a series of more or less disciplines on country regulation writ large, you know. Um, you know, your regulation shouldn't be a hidden trade barrier, right? Mm, and you have, yep. you can have so many legitimate, uh, you know, you can, you can, you can regulate differently to achieve legitimate uh, objectives like protecting the public or protecting the environment. But, you know, when you do that, you should do so in ways that are the least burdensome on trade and that, again, are not hidden trade barriers whatnot. So there were these disciplines that were starting to come into place. Um, and then in the mid-80s, you know, you saw those built into uh, bilateral trade deals like the Canada-U.S. trade agreement eventually very quickly turned into NAFTA, and, and you started to get them kind of built in as a core feature of these trade agreements. NAFTA is the North American Free Trade Agreement. The problem, I think, and I wouldn't say not a problem for me, but the problem for countries like the United States was, well, they're doing this, but, you know, and these rules seem quite strict, but, you know, um, there was, they're, they're still vague. There's still kind of allowances. Mm -hmm. There's this gray zones for what is a legitimate objective, what is too burdensome than necessary. And so countries had still some flexibility to introduce rules that varied, right? So regulatory variance is still then for countries like the United States and others is still kind of a problem of global trade. You know, so regulations in one country that are designed in such a way that it makes it expensive for U.S. products or other, you know, to enter that market or even be available at all in that market, right? When you think about some pesticide products and that kind of thing. So in this sense, like I can imagine that where there's trade agreements and there's tariffs, you can, you can as part of the agreement, put in very specific rules to say, well, you won't put in this tariff or you won't require this rule that creates a trade barrier. But is this an example of effectively trying to adopt a um, more far-reaching regime where, no, you've got to start with the basic principle of building good regulation in the first instance. We're not going to talk about specific rules. We just want you to build regulation that's necessary so that we're not encumbered when we try to bring product into your country. Like, is this another way of 
trying to put that general principle into trade agreements to just have good regulatory stock? Yes, uh, I do believe that is a, yeah, that's a prime consideration. Um, it's basically, you know, the experience under the WTO has been not very satisfying for, uh, you know, certain countries and certain industries who would like to see what they would consider trade barriers in other countries come down, even if those barriers are things like just simply different environmental standards or different food standards, that kind yeah. of thing. Uh, and so what they want is a way to preempt those differences to begin with. And uh, it's really a kind of thinking through of, of how do you do that? And so one way is, well, maybe we should uh, build the regulatory disciplines directly into the trade agreement, right? So mm -hmm. let's be more specific about what is good regulation and what is bad regulation and what is trade distorting. And I think that's what's going on with these chap with these good regulatory practices chapters and say the Brexit deal with the EU or in the USMCA. And then on the other side, you've got the OECD and countries like Canada uh, saying, well, no, that's not the way to do it. We should be doing it through these kind of voluntary, uh, you know, uh, arrangements like the Regulatory Cooperation Council, right, which was not attached to a specific trade deal. And this is with the United States and Canada. This was something that was done, coordinated by regulatory agencies. So wow. in Canada, this, this was coordinated by the Treasury Board and in the United States by the Office of Management and Budget. So this was outside of the trade region. It was, uh, it was very much focused on, as you said, regulatory stock, good regulatory practice. Let's if we can just kind of get the same mentality around when to regulate in what way and what's, you know, what's too burdensome and that kind of thing, um, then maybe we can cooperate. Uh, and through the cooperation, we're socializing our own regulators to think about the global picture more often, right? Uh, start thinking maybe, yes, protecting the public is important, but, you know, so is profitability of this entire, you know, this sector mm -hmm. uh, it might be compromised by the decisions you're making. So to me, there's those two things that are kind of, you know, working side by side and sometimes at, against each other right now. There's the hard legal trade based version, which we see in these new chapters. And then we've got this other kind of governmental, intergovernmental, uh, voluntary kind of uh, different way of, of trying to achieve the same thing, which is regulation that is designed to be a trade facilitative that is designed more or less to keep the global economy running efficiently and less, less I would say, um, that is focused on things like safety and environment. These are kind of, in my, in my reading, these are, these are important, but they're now the afterthoughts of good regulatory practice, right? It's ah. the protection of the environment. And so, 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 you know, good regulatory scrutiny should make sure that you know, the regulation is targeted in a way and equips the regulator to fix the problem or minimise the harm. Like, have you found that these provisions in trade agreements actually work? Like, what's the effect of them? Do they actually translate to better outcomes on the ground? It sounds like they definitely translate to a greater consideration for trade flows, which many would argue is an important thing to do, um, but many would also say, but not at the expense of impacting harms or reducing protections like what what's the actual impact of these provisions in, in from your experience in your research yeah i mean that's a really a really good question and the answer is i think we don't know yet i mean these are like you said these are brand new provisions in trade agreements so we don't know how they're going to affect um uh, you know domestic regulation at, at this point um 
I noticed that in the in the EU Brexit deal with with the UK, that chapter, for example, isn't um, isn't applicable, or a dispute settlement is not applicable to that chapter. So you know, one side or the other cannot uh, take the other side to a trade tribunal to contest mm, their yes. you know the yeah. quality of the regulatory impact assessments. Yeah. Right? I mean, in the in the USMCA, we have that. It's kind of subject to dispute settlement. So you know, if one side is found by the other to be kind of continuously not cooperating or continuously, you know, uh, you know, if, if Canada, for example, uh, it's regulatory uh, impact assessments or whatever it's cost benefit analysis, that kind of thing was not to the standards of the U S for example, uh, the U S could then take us to a trade tribunal. Um, again, though, but this is just like brand new. So we don't know how it's going to operate. I think mm. uh, right now you have a lot of, environmental groups in the European Union in particular, but also here in North America, uh, you know, uh, I would say environmental groups, health advocates, food safety advocates, that kind of thing. They're concerned about how it's going to operate in practice um, because it is about, like we said, it's about preempting trade disputes. And so if it's about preempting trade disputes, it happens prior and it happens in ways that are not always transparent. So the idea being that the cooperation is kind of running under the radar at this point. Um, and, and, and to me, I find that strange or kind of ironic considering all these transparency requirements that are put into the chapters themselves and into domestic uh, good regulatory practices themselves, right? I mean, governments are expected to pretty much lay out exactly what they're doing at every step of the regulatory process yeah, yeah. Uh, for the benefit of the regulated community, right? Like here's what we're doing and why you know, please don't be mad at us. It's all here for you to see. <laughs> yeah. um, and then you've got these cooperation activities, which are not transparent at all. It's hard to find out when they're happening, who's involved, um, you know, which which private stakeholders have been invited, uh, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. The information is, is not great. Um, yeah. And and so that's where the, these groups are concerned. They're concerned that the regulatory process itself can be high, kind of hijacked uh, or, or captured through these cooperation uh, mechanisms and trade agreements. This is Adam Beaumont and you're listening to Conversations with Purpose. My guest today is Stuart True from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and we're talking about the role of good regulatory practice provisions in international trade agreements. Yeah, it's a good point because, you know, the, a lot of the impact assessment processes are designed to be transparent so that people can see this is the problem we care about these are the this is the structure we're going to use to control the problem and these are the powers we're going to equip the regulator with to fix it on the ground so you're saying that the regulatory cooperation piece is a little bit more intra like discussions between regulators or discussions between government departments of different countries you mentioned the regulatory cooperation council um in, and I, so, and you were saying that's between Canada and the US. Can you talk a bit more about that and what they, well, <laughs> as much as you know, given our previous transparency comment, but what they actually do, what they were there to set up to achieve? Yeah, um, for sure. Um, yeah, I've been doing a, a little bit of research on the RCC uh, lately, the Regulatory Cooperation Council. Um, it was set up in the Obama, early Obama period. So like around 2010, 2011, Canada and the United States decided they needed to kind of rejuvenate their bilateral, uh, regular bilateral talks, uh, negotiations. 
relationship, I suppose, under a new president. And, and one priority for the Obama administration was regulatory modernization, um, which, uh, you know, kind of built on what Clinton had done around uh, regulatory efficiency and the use of cost benefit and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Obama brought in his, his guru, Cass Sunstein, right, who was a regulatory policy thinker out of, out of uh, academia. Um, and they, they decided, well, you know, we, we really want to get regulatory cooperation going. This is kind of new for us. We think it's an interesting kind of way that countries can uh, try and harmonize uh, rules affecting trade that, ha- you know, that, has, that will maybe work in ways that we haven't worked before through trade agreements. And their main target was actually the European Union. Um, they've been thinking for quite a while, uh, how do we create a kind of a European American space economic market, right? So make sure that our regulations are more compatible. Um, you know, lots of disputes between the US and the EU around food, uh, pesticide, maximum residue levels, for example, GMOs, you know, the way chickens are washed, you know, all the stuff that became controversial in the in the TTIP negotiations uh, during the Obama years. And they decided, well, before we do that with the European Union, let's test drive it with Canada. So we'll we'll see if bilateral, you know, voluntary, under the radar regulatory cooperation works and can kind of get rid of some irritants that are brought to our attention by industry. So from the beginning, a regulatory cooperation council was a service, I would say a service for industry. Um, and, and I don't think the Canadian government would dispute my, uh, my using the term service for industry. It's really what they were hoping to achieve. Um, it's kind of, it's one of the suite of regulatory services that somebody like in Canada, the Treasury Board, uh, feels it needs to pro- provide to industries in order to create a regulatory space that is conducive to their profits and to economic growth and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so they, they set up a consultation, they invited industry to provide feedback on what they should be doing first. Um, it was. It just basically was the, a list of irritants that have existed between Canada and the United States going back to the early Canada-U.S. free trade agreement days. A lot of them around food inspection uh, in the United States. Um, some of them around the way toxic chemicals are managed, the way risk is assessed, uh, the way risk is managed after that. And so you had this kind of work group set up, some, and it was led by regulators. That was the novelty. So this was going to be regulator-led with pressure to de- deliver on priorities, yeah. um, the priorities themselves coming from industry. So this was mostly an industry-led uh, initiative, but with top-down pressure from, say, the Treasury Board or the Office of Management and Budget on the regulators to get these things done with the idea that if we could get this thing routinized and show some support, like show that it actually works, industry will use it. It'll be kind of become a self-perpetuating thing. You know, all of yeah. a sudden regulatory cooperation is kind of socialized as something that regulators just, do. We just do as and a matter of just, course. Yeah, exactly. That, that was the idea uh, between the RCC. It, it, it's um, interesting because it, it's a logical notion. Like businesses talk about unreasonable regulatory experiences where the standards don't make sense or they're not practical or they get tested or checked three times by three different parties for the same thing. Like those things seem to make sense from an efficiency perspective. Um, and, you know, it would make sense that the regulators would listen to businesses experience and seek to improve it without undermining the core tenant of what they're seeking to achieve. Is that, can you give an example of anything they tackled and whether they did make the regulatory interface more efficient without compromising on the standards? 
Yeah. There's one, there is one funny story. Is, yeah, there are some examples, I think, of where Canada has, um, Canada, we've had like a less than ideal situation, uh, an outcome, regulatory outcome. I just want to first start with this funny story I heard from uh, this U.S. NGO representative who, you know, he, he works in the kind of food area, right, food and agriculture. <clears throat> and he was just uh, outraged at this uh, regulatory cooperation council stakeholder session that I think it was in 2012, where, um, you know, the government, both sides, they brought together industry players. The idea was to kind of continue to draw support for this thing. And what are the big ideas and what are the big irritants? And, you know, from the Canadian side, they had these meat, uh, meat industry people, meat processing uh, industry people who have for ages been upset that the U.S. Uh, dares to inspect meat products when they cross the border, right? Uh, and wants these inspections to be done. They're like, you know, the FDA comes into Canadian processing plants and inspects our plants. So why do you need to inspect our products again at the border? Well, of course, the answer was, and this NGO representative brought it up at this meeting. He said, well, because we keep finding, you know, BSC or, or E. coli, right? Like our inspectors are finding problems in your meat processing plants that the Canadian inspectors don't find because there's fewer, fewer inspections here. Right? You've kind of gone down that road of, again, another good regulatory practice is you kind of focus on the high-risk areas. And of course, you miss things there. So that was one thing. But he also said, you know, another reason we inspect your, your, your meat is because sometimes it's not what it says it is, right? I mean, Canada, for a while, you might not have, not, not have seen this in the news, but we were kind of caught exporting uh, horse yes. as pork. <laughs> I remember, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're trying to convince U.S. regulators that that they shouldn't be inspecting uh, Canadian meat at the border. I mean, this was this just went nowhere, right? And it was one of the highest Canadian priorities. Um, more recently, I, and more worrying, worryingly for someone like me, is is uh, there was this paint coatings case, and so the coatings industry um, has been working with the RCC for some time to try and come up with harmonized. Uh, methodologies for assessing risk of things like biocides and other additives, preservatives in, in paint and other, and other coatings. And in 2017, Canada reassessed a certain uh, biocide. Um, I don't remember what it was called at this point, again, with an O, I know that for sure, but I'm not a, you know, chemicals a regulation expert. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, but, but they determined, you know, it was fine in a lot of products, but when it came to as a preservative in, in coatings, it can get airborne and it, and it poses significant risks to people, right? So mostly workers. I mean, when the people who would be applying this stuff would be mostly uh, workers in, in the field applying the coatings. And so it was banned. It was prohibited. Um, an RCC process was established, according to the industry, if you look at their, uh, their website. And, uh, you know, three years later, just last November, Canada dropped uh, the ban. It reversed itself. It said, well... We're just going to go with what the U.S. is doing right now, which is to allow the product in, in the coatings, right? So this was, to oh. me, a case, a fairly clear case of, you know, uh, making sure that the trade uh, flows uh, normally or, or, you know, a lot of the paints, obviously, and, bios and uh, coatings do come from the United States. So it would have had a big impact uh, on, on the industry. But uh, now we have Canadian workers who are less safe than they would have been based on the government's own scientific assessment and decision, um, simply because we're going to be cooperating uh, as, a, as a higher priority than protecting Canadian workers. So it's just, it's one example 
Um, and, and uh, you know, there are others I put in my report related to, you know, rail safety, the transportation of dangerous goods, where, you know, cooperation with the United States does, I believe, put, uh, you know, it either, from one perspective, puts pressure downwards on Canadian regulators. On another, uh, speaking to a colleague of mine uh, who studies this stuff, he, sees, he seems to think the RCC gives the government an excuse <laughs> to mm. kind of uh, listen to industry uh, rail industry pressure on the kinds of regulations they'd like to see. Just as a side note, as Stuart and I were talking towards the end of the podcast after we'd stopped recording, we had a good conversation about regulatory cooperation and how, in some instances in Canada and certainly my experience here in Australia, getting regulators together can actually drive a whole lot of useful conversation about how to better regulate, how to better apply the law, and when to push back or accept demands that are coming from both industry and government in the interests of protecting the community or maintaining standards. So anyway, there, there's those kinds of uh, examples. There's another one around labeling of, uh, of hazardous materials um, in, in transit in the workplace, so workplace chemicals, where labor unions in Canada feel that uh, Canada was on the verge of, of adopting quite strong standards when all of a sudden this was made a regulatory cooperation council uh, priority. So rather than kind of Canada coming up with its own set that would be harmonized with the very strict uh, new UN guidelines that had just come out, we would instead cooperate with the United States. And that means, of course, limiting ourselves to how far they were willing to go to implement those same UN guidelines. And as mm-hmm. it turns out, according to the, uh, the labor unions, this was, it was less protective at the end of the day. So, you know, uh, there's, there's some examples like there's others less benign examples or more benign examples, I would say, but, uh, but there's but, risks. I would say there's definite risks. And there's a theme there, isn't there, in the sense that if you, if you open up for conversation about the way you regulate something or the standards you accept and you bring in another country with a different set of stakeholders, your ability to compromise has to be larger. <laughs> so it sounds like <laughs> that compromise has resulted, at least from the Canadian perspective, in standards that, the local population wouldn't ordinarily have accepted. Um, question on the, like, as one of the interesting components of this is that this idea of regulatory cooperation is a voluntary initiative. And as you mentioned with the EU agreement for with the EU and the UK, it's not subject to dispute because it's completely voluntary in its nature. What's your view and what's your experience around the notion of using voluntary mechanisms versus hard wiring mechanisms? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's, an, an, again, a really interesting question because uh, we're just now starting to see the hardwired, uh, in the trade agreements at least, we're starting to see these hardwired chapters on what is a good regulation, good regulatory practice, and how should countries adopt them, right? Um, I would say the voluntary stuff is it's never really quite voluntary. I mean, there is an element of, uh, there are mandates, you know, that, that mm-hmm. the government can give to regulators to cooperate with each other. Um, it's voluntary in the sense that at the, at the government level, at the state level, um, they can choose which areas they want to cooperate in. But when it comes to regulators themselves, the regulatory departments, you know, once your government decides an area is a priority for harmonization or cooperation, it's not, it won't feel as voluntary, right? I mean, they're kind of required to go through mm, these yeah. motions, right? Um, my sense of my sense of the process is, um, you know, it, again, it's about <clears throat> what are you hoping to achieve? 
um, uh, it's it's really a, a methodology difference, right? I, I really do think that the Canadian government has kind of hitched itself more to this uh, let's let's regulate the regulators kind of approach. Let's do this. Uh, let's set set um, a framework at the domestic level for what is required of them. So we have a cabinet directive on on regulation, which is constantly being modernized uh, to add things like you know. Um, we have a red tape reduction act, for example, where for every new rule you have to think about one old rule to get rid of, right? Uh, or, or you know, burden on business tallies that they started doing. So you basically now, as a departmental regulator, you have to think what is the cumulative burden of all of our regulations, and how do we constantly notch it down every year? Mm. So there's these kinds of cross-government, cross-regulator, uh, top-down measures that are that are there to discipline. Uh, our, our environmental regulators, our public health regulators, and then the volunteer, and then the cooperation. In my view, from from my research, uh, and speaking to some of the people involved in setting up, for example, the regulatory cooperation council, they're always talking about changing the culture of regulators, right? Um, making sure that this is just something that they want to do, you know, that they do naturally. Um, and I think that's the strategy they've chosen, and, and one that I think is reflected in the. OECD guidelines that they that they continually revise and put out. It's very much a uh, it's a very much a kind of at a distance uh, control over what our regulators are doing, making sure they're regulating in more trade focused ways. In uh, you know, for example, um, another another discipline that's just coming down the pipes in Canada. And I apologize if this is a bit rambling. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think through as you ask the question though, like yeah, what yeah. are the differences between these two means. Um, just as an example of, of the, uh, the more voluntary ways, like uh, we're going to be putting in place legislation that will require regulators to consider um, economic growth when they make decisions, right? So they call it a so-called economic mandate uh, mm-hmm. for regulators. So, and that is very much targeted at these people, at, whether it's Health Canada or Environment and Climate Change Canada, who say, as you did, you know, in our conversation earlier, um, I'm a regulator. I'm there to protect the public, right? So, this is designed to make them think. Well, that's not actually true. As a regulator, your goal is also uh, to think about the economic future of this country, to think about the competitiveness of industry and, and whatnot. So, it's it, the voluntary stuff to me is about socialization, uh, changing the attitude of regulators themselves versus this top-down, very U.S. trade kind of favored legal. We're just going to come down like a ton of bricks on you guys if you put in place rules yes. that don't agree with these, you know, good practices we put into this new trade agreement. Uh, and that rule of, you know, this new piece of legislation you're talking about that requires regulators to consider the economic impact of their decisions as a requirement of the decision-making process, has that come about post the COVID era when people are going, oh, you know, we really need to rebuild or we really need to get the economy moving again? Or is this something that was well and truly in the train before COVID even started. Yeah. No, well, well before, well on the train. Um, as 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 far back as twenty. Well, you know, if you look at the like, if you look at documents from say the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, right, or the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, they've been calling for this kind of thing for a long time since the Regulatory Cooperation Council was established in 2010. There have been business uh, requests or demands, whatever you want to call them, for um, for exactly such an economic mandate. You know. Uh, for for rules that say you have to harmonize with the United States 
or have a really good reason not to. You know, so they've been pushing for these kinds of rules for a while. Um, the liberal government we have, the current liberal government of Justin Trudeau, uh, since 2018 has been talking about this in its budget uh, implementation bills. Um, it's talking about the modernization of the regulatory process. We've seen uh, other things that are in common with the UK and Australia around, you know, the use of regulatory sandboxes or, yep. you know, regulatory uh, regulating for innovation and that kind of thing. Right. So all of this, I mean, this is kind of a global thing, but the, but the economic mandate, it predates uh, COVID and it's just on, it's on rails. And, you know, if we had an election tomorrow and all of a sudden the conservatives were put in power again, it wouldn't change. Right. I mean, this is just, this is an agenda that is on rails. Like you said, yeah. it doesn't matter who's in power. Um, but I, I find it quite quite worrying because um, a lot of this stuff goes under the radar, and and groups, environmental groups in particular, and, and others, um, they're not you know they're paying attention to other specific regulatory questions, and so they miss these. You know, you don't have time to spend yeah. a lot of attention on these, these bigger are the picture biggest structural sort of macro processes that mm-hmm. are occurring. And it's interesting because the this sort of um, red tape always equates to bad or regulation equals red tape and therefore is bad, uh, I think is an ongoing common dialogue. It's not something that's that's new. And for as long as there's been regulators and rules, there's always been people saying they're too harsh or they're too lenient. Um, Stuart, this has been a really interesting conversation for a few reasons for me. Like my key takeaways out of this is a lot of the micro-level pressures that we see on regulators and governments to, to protect the public, but also to make sure that the economy functions, um, that cascades through all levels of government. And I think the inclusion of these sort of good regulatory practice principles really focused on regulatory stock at trade level um, really isn't that surprising based on the fact that that's happening at a state or a federal level and many governments anyway. If you could give a, you know one piece of advice to, to regulators based on your work and your research and your experience, what, what would you offer? Oh, I don't, this is a hard question or advice to regulators. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like there needs to be a little bit of pushback uh, on, on some of these um, directives, regulatory directives coming down, um, which are going in one direction, right? They're going down more and more disciplines on what regulators can do and in ways that move regulators outside of say, um, how should I put this? that take that, take the regulatory profession kind of away from any kind of democratic accountability, right? Uh, really limit what their jobs are, um, really kind of make it more of a, a robotic exercise than something that is really thought out based on what are the needs of our country? What are the needs of workers in this country? That kind of thing. I'd, I'd like to see a bit more pushback on some of those domestic regulatory disciplines that are coming, coming down. Um, and then, yeah, and then advice for like others looking at this uh, to globally is, is to, uh, I think we need to pay more attention to these new trade deals that are coming out, these new reg- good regulatory practices chapters in the trade deals. Um, again, they're kind of coming at us fast and furious now. I think they will. We've seen the U.S., you know, negotiating similar chapters with Brazil, uh, Ecuador, uh, the U.K. It's going to keep snowballing now. And, and I think we got to get a handle <laughs> on what they're going to achieve or what they hope to achieve with that. Stuart, thank you so much. It's uh, it's really great to talk to you and thank you for taking the time from Ottawa in what is probably getting quite late for you um, to talk to me about 
trade agreements and regulatory practice and how we can make sure that, yes, we support trade, but not at the expense of undermining protections. Well, thanks for, for talking. I might ra I'd rather be doing nothing else, actually. This is great. It's really nice <laughs> to meet you and talk to you. See you, Stuart. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. You can download Stuart's paper and learn more about the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives at their website at www.policyalternatives.ca. You can also follow Stuart on Twitter under StuJT. This is Adam Beaumont. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Purpose. Please subscribe, and if you'd like more information, please visit my website at withpurpose.consulting. Bye for now.